Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and you're listening to the Fairy and Fantasy class. Welcome to Fairy and Fantasy, episode 37. This week, Professor Olson continues with Garth Nix's young adult fantasy, Sabriel, chapters 12 through 17. I want to uh, first uh, add to our collection from last time the new species of lesser dead that we met in today's reading. Uh, who is that? The Mordor? Yes, the Mordor. Um, what do we learn from it? What's different about it compared to the others? It's like a parasite kind of uses a human that's alive. Yeah, yeah, it's the, the, the guy is actually alive. The host of the, of the thing is actually alive uh, while he's there. Well, you know, until the end. But, but yeah, yeah it is, while he's operating, uh, he is alive. What do we learn about this? One of the things that we can see here that we haven't seen so clearly uh, from the other uh, forms of dead is the relationship between dead things and living things. That is, we saw how different ways in which dead things seem to be sort of mockeries or imitations of living things so that we can see sort of the perversion of the body-spirit connection, which seems to be insisted upon uh, within this story. What do we learn from the Mordad? What do we see in the Mordad that we don't see in other things? Liz? Yeah, it seems both, both blood and energy. Uh, someone who is consumed by a Mordad looks like... It. What, do you remember what, what they're compared to? It was kind of um, like ashes. They just kind of crumble in and fall away. Yeah. Crumbs. Guys, yeah, compared to like a piece of paper that has burned up, the ashes of a piece of paper, right, that still retains the form of the paper, but as soon as you touch it, it crumbles. The interesting thing is um, the person has the appearance of being alive still. Yeah. The human appearance that's still alive rather than being dead. The person seems to be vitality. Yeah, and I really like the, the sort of connection between the living host and the, and the dead remains of the person. That is, in both cases, you have this external superficial appearance of life while in fact they are being preyed upon from within and in fact dominated by the dead thing. So when in the end you're left with this husk which looks like a person but in fact has no substance at all other than the purest most superficial shell um, uh, that's really just a literalization of what the person is already like uh, when the Mordad is feeding on them prior to death, uh, even though they've not yet been sucked dry. But this is the first time, I think, the first time we've seen a dead person feeding on a living person in this way. So far, the relationship has been chiefly of uh, subjugation. That is, you can take, you know, a, 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 a dead person would take a living person's spirit and subjugate it. They attack living things. But again, all of the dead things that Sabriel has met so far have not just been random, roving, dead things uh, that are feeding on people, but enemies that are sent to attack her. Yeah? Throck? Yes. Well, yes. Yes. Yeah, in him we see it. But there, the again, I'm putting him in that different category because he's one of the greater dead, right? So we can see that he is this autonomous spirit. Um, and that's, I think, what, what we can learn from the Mordad. What we can see from the Mordad is the connection between the lesser dead and the greater dead. That is, this seems to be, um, it seems that we can conclude that this is sort of, this seems to be a fundamental law, this relationship between dead things and living things. Um, we know that Thralk was predatory both in death and in life. That is, in the world of the living, not during his own life. Though he, he died in a hunting accident, I guess. But, but still, he, um, we know that he fed upon lesser spirits. And we know that his interest in Sabriel, the reason he uh, made the ultimately ill-judged decision to come up and attack her on the hilltop, was that he could sense the strength of her spirit and that, and that he hungered for it. So, yeah, clearly with Throck, we do see that. But here we see not this kind of autonomous spirit, um, but we see that this is sort of reality. What, it, it, more broadly, in the village of Nesto here, we see this 
village of living people that has now been placed literally under siege by the dead. Um, here we get a glimpse again, not just of what Sabriel's life is like when these dead creatures are coming after her under orders, but that, but sort of what it is like just to be a random living civilian in this world where the dead are running rampant. Um, and we'll come back. One of the things I want to get to today is what it, what why the dead are running rampant and what exactly has happened, what we know about the state of things in the Old Kingdom. Um, but before we do that, I want to, uh, I want, well, and again, just wait, one last thing about the more doubt. Again, the thing that I want to emphasize here, of course, especially strengthened by uh, uh, the convictions which we no doubt very rightly obtained from zombie movies, uh, it wouldn't, doesn't, I don't suppose, comes as a big surprise to any of the readers that, like, what walking dead thing want is to eat living people. Um, that's rather what we would expect them to do, right? But we don't, it's not simply, it seems it's not so far that we see this is not just a corporeal thing. Um, what the more doubt shows us is that this is, there is a physical component, of course. The, the bodies of the, uh, of the victims of the more doubt are consumed. But, it is, the, it is the spirit, the way she describes it, sort of latched onto him and kind of sipping away its spirit bit by bit. And that even while, even before, long before, it has been physically consumed when the strength of the host of the Mordout um, is still normal physically, um, his spirit is completely dominated by the Mordout and he is operating <coughs> under orders uh, of the dead thing that is, that is clinging to him. Um, so uh, thinking of that, of that body-spirit divide that we were looking at last time, it is clearly the spirit which is, which, is, which is more important, which is the thing that really draws. They're not just flesh-eaters. They're not just like mm, brains. They, uh, they're interested actually in, in, in spirit or mind, not just brains. Anyway, um, but back to what I mentioned at the end of class last time I wanted to come back to. We, looked at, we were looking at Thralk, and we were looking at sort of how one becomes one of the greater dead, and what that is like, and sort of the characteristics of that. And in the light of that, I want to come back to the conversation that Moggett and Sabriel have in the house about Sabriel's dad. This is, of course, in their continuing and ongoing disagreement about whether or not she is the abhorsome. Right? And she keeps insisting that he use her regular name, not because she's uncomfortable with being the abhorsen or doesn't want to be the abhorsen, but wh- why? What does she, why does she insist on this? Yeah, Brittany? Because she associates that name with her father. That's her father's name, right? And if she's the abhorsen, then... He's dead. Then he's dead, right? She can't be the abhorsen until he's given up the title, and she doesn't concede that he's given up the title. Um, what is Moggett's evidence... Why does Moggett insist that she's the abortion? He passed the bells and the sword onto her. Yeah, he's like, that's what that means, right? He gave you the bells and the sword. That's what you do when you hand on the title to somebody else. You are officially the abortion now. And she knows he's in death. We talked about that last time. She has pretty good evidence about that. What does she not know about him? What is the thing that she's in doubt about? There's really only one open question about her dad. Whether he's completely dead, as in he can never be retrieved from death, or if he's just sort of stuck there temporarily, and if she can find his body, bring him back to life. Yeah, yeah. Is his... Is she wondering whether or not his physical body is still, like, right. breathing, heart-pumping, even it, though his spirit is in death? Yes, exactly. That's, that's the difference. How do you tell... What's the difference between the completely dead and the, and the mostly dead, right? <laughs> in this case, clearly, they talk about it in terms of the body. Is his body alive and trapped somewhere and his spirit <coughs> imprisoned in death? In which case, he could be brought back no problem. Well, I mean, okay, I might be challenging to free him from whatever's imprisoning him, but assuming you can do that, you can bring him back. But if his body is dead, I mean, if his body's already been chopped up into little bits and his spirit is imprisoned in death, then you could bring him back, but you'd only be bringing him back as a dead thing. And this is what one of the things that Magan is obviously worried about. Um, 
page 85. This is uh, right after she first attempts or almost attempts to go into death within the house and Margaret stops her from doing that. We discussed that scene last time. She says, about two-thirds of the way down the page, Father is not yet truly dead, she said after a moment. I felt his presence, though he is trapped beyond many gates. I could bring him back. Now here by truly dead, what does she mean? She doesn't know anything about the body, so she can't make assertions about that. What does she mean by he's not truly dead? She senses that he is not yet through the ninth gate. Yes, to be truly dead is to be beyond the ninth gate. That's... That's gone to wherever. The, the world of death, the nine different levels of death, um, these are all a kind of in-between place. Right? It's not a destination. We can see that by the current. To stay there, you have to work really hard, swimming against the current the whole time. It is just, well, like, sort of not even metaphorically, a voyage from life to whatever. And we don't know what's beyond the ninth gate. Nobody knows what's beyond the ninth gate in these books. But um, that's what it means to be truly dead, to be in that final whatever is there, past the ninth gate. So that's what she means by truly dead here. So, okay, so his spirit is still there in death. You must not, said Mogget firmly, and his voice now seemed to carry all the weight of centuries. You are abhorsen and must put the dead to rest. Your path is chosen. I can walk a different path, Sabriel replied firmly. You are a person and must put the dead to rest. Tell me about that line. What's important there? Well, the stereotype of the necromancers that we haven't met any, but we've heard of them, and they raise the dead typically for their own evil purposes. But the abortion is destined to put the dead to rest, and that's why... Um, back when she's still at school and her teacher says, but that's ne- necromancy, like that's bad and she says, no, no, this is charter magic, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. She operates, but it's but it is an illustration. The abhorsen walks this line. Right? Walks this line between charter magic and free magic. The, the abhorsen is a necromancer, but an okay necromancer, a legitimate ne- necromancer, using the powers of necromancy in order to undo necromancy. Um, but they're very similar. If you meet a necromancer, you know what they'll look like? They'll have like a bunch of bells, exactly the same bells. Um, now, there are no, there's no charter magic, it's just free magic, right? Pure free magic, where we can see the mix of free magic uh, and charter magic in the abortion's bells. Um, but again, already, the abortion is on this boundary, and it's sometimes, as Margaret is pointing out, a tricky boundary. Well, uh, It also implies that the abortion is a necessary thing. That, they, that she has to do the job because the world needs an abortion. Yeah, yeah. You must, you, you must put the dead to rest. Right? To lay the emphasis on must there. This is, your, this is not just a question of like, you know... Yeah, exactly. This is you now have a much higher responsibility, higher, higher than your responsibility to your dad. Well, and I think we can see that also in the way that she's treated by the people who meet her, like the, um, the villagers in this Misto. Um, ultimate, like, respect and, and admiration. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, it is, uh, it, is, it's, it is a really nice moment when the elder recognizes the abhorsen and invites her over to the island. Help at last, right? Um, you know, will you free us from the dead, abhorsen? Uh, and even we think of the way in which, now this is the second person that we've met outside of the abhorsen household who has talked about the abhorsen in this way. I mean, I'm not even kind of counting touchstone, but even there you can see his immediate recognition. The very first thing he says is, you know, thank you, Abhorsen, before he keels over. Uh, um, but, um, but I'm thinking here first of the soldiers at the wall uh, and the way that uh, Colonel Horis, Horis, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Horace. 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 That seems a little anticlimactic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
I'll submit. I'll submit. Um, Tim Curry doesn't pronounce it that way. <coughs> Tim Curry does the audiobook of the Abortion Trilogy, which is a little bit awesome. Uh, he does a he does a he, he he does a pretty good job. His Moggit is really good, actually. I love Tim Curry's Moggit. But anyhow, um, uh, yeah. So the, the Colonel, okay, Colonel Horace. Uh, the way he talks about the abortion and the wind flutes, right? And the way that that's her first glimpse of like, oh man, like it was, we were really hosed until your dad, the abortion, came along and that was great. And now we see this, within this larger context, within this sort of mythic context uh, of, of the, the abortion has come, now we shall be saved. Um, save us from the dead, abortion. Yeah, she's got a job. And, you know, uh, lately it's a, it's a more important job even than usual. Um, but of course we can see also not just sort of the general job description implications of this statement, but the personal implications of this statement. Right? You must put the dead to rest. Meaning also her dad. Right? This means, on the one hand, you are the abortion and this is your job description. At the same time, it also means let him go. Let your dad go. Because if she doesn't let him go, what's she going to do? It's like going over to the dark side. <laughs> kind of feels that way, doesn't it? I mean, that, it's, that her love for her dad and her desire to restore her dad, and also, of course, fueled in addition by her own sense of inadequacy uh, and insecurity, that would lead her to become the bad guy and just call him up. She could do that. He's there in death. His spirit is there in death. She could like make her father her shadow hand which would not be good in several ways. Jordan? Um, one really interesting bit about that exchange is when Margaret goes to the path is chosen, Sambo says, I can walk a different path. Yes. And I want to refer this back to something in chapter 3. Good. Sambo goes, does the walker choose the path or the path of the walker? Several of the words redolent with echoes of cherry magic, twining about her tongue with some lingering spice. Those words with the dedication in front of the almanac. They're also the very last words, all alone on the last page of the Book of the Dead. And I find that really significant because only an uncorrupted cherry magic can close the Book of the Dead, i.e., those pages are where the uncorrupted cherry magic stands. Yes, yes. Does the walker choose the path or the path the walker? This is like the motto of the abortion death. Um, it's the it's dedication that, she, that her father writes in her book. It's the last page of the Book of the Dead. It's, it's, it might seem perhaps like a crushing anticlimax, right? After years of training and study, you finally turn the final page of the Book of the Dead to have revealed to you the deepest, uh, you know, most powerful secrets of necromancy, and it's just this sentence that your dad already wrote in the dedication of your book when you were like seven or something. Does the walker choose the path or the path the walker? Um, and yes, we absolutely are, should be remembering that there. Um, because of course, both of them are articulating a different half of that sentence or of that question. Moggett suggests the path has chosen you. And she says, I can walk a different path. Who is right? What is the answer to the question? Does the walker choose the path or the path the walker? That's exactly the disagreement that they're having there. Um, and again, you can see even, you know, Will, going back to your point, even the way that he states, you know, you must put the dead to rest. This is, you don't actually have a choice about this. This is what must happen. Um, On page 86, Moggett's final attempt is just to get her to promise him something. You must promise me that you will not raise your father if his body is dead. Truly, he would not wish it. And this is where we see that distinction between whether his body is dead or not as being a really crucial one as far as what happens to his spirit. If his body is dead, his spirit just needs to go through the ninth gate. That's the abortion's job. Get everybody, get, get the dead people through the ninth gate. Right, keep, the, keep the assembly line moving there. 
Um, he would truly, he would not wish it. I cannot promise, but I will not act without much thought. So she won't promise not to do that. Um, which is itself kind of interesting. It's, a, it's, it's an odd door to leave open uh, under the circumstances. What is, we talked about the motto of House of Horson. What is the symbol? Yeah, a silver key. Silver key. Um, that's the symbol that's all over her clothes and everything else that they give her at the house. Why? Matt? Because uh, she's supposed to keep the border between life and death closed and locked. Yes. Yeah. yeah, the abhorsen is the gatekeeper to death. Not that like you have to get the abhorsen's permission to go into death, um, but certainly the abhorsen is the guardian against those who would come out. Um, and that's we see this happening in the description that Throck, that we get in the discussion of Throck about the mighty spirit from below the seventh gate that tried to burst out and met a mighty enemy at the, at the gates of life. That's, that's the abhorsen turning the key and slamming the door, or at least attempting to. Um, so yes, that's... Uh, we get <coughs> several different categories of people. What's, what's the great charter? This is a question which people in the book can't answer. Unless they're legal, apparently. At the very end, chapter 17, she asks the girl, little Aline, on the island, to recite the rhyme of the charm. And she recites the rhyme about the great charm. The five great charters. Page 182 is where it's located. Five great charters knit the land, together linked hand in hand. One in the people who wear the crown, two in the folk who keep the dead down. Three and five became stone and mortar, four sees all in frozen water. The sort of near rhyme there in the final couplet reminds me of Narnia. Um, this is an ancient rhyme, also. Now, what are we talking about? Even if you don't understand every element, which if you haven't read it before, this is the kind of thing that makes a lot more sense after you finish the book in the trilogy, but... Uh, but even from here, we can at least see what, in general, we're talking about. We get our first and most obvious clue there in line three. Five great charters knit the land, together linked hand in hand. So notice in line two, we're personifying the charters, right? describing them as if they were holding hands. One in the people who wear the crown. What have we learned about the great charter? It's linked with royal blood. It's linked even just with people, first of all. Even before we notice who the people are, it's linked with people. And the other five are also connected with people. Two in the folk who keep the dead down. So, so who are the first two branches of the, the first two links in the great chart? The royal bloodline and the abhorsen. Yes. So we've got these two. We know that the abhorsen uh, family is an ancient bloodline that goes back thousands of years. Um, what do we know about the royal family? Huh? Yeah, the royal family's been gone for 200 years. Um, and so it seems not just a kind of Arthurian coincidence that the land is suffering as there is no king. Right? It is also 
a pleasantly Arthurian coincidence, but nevertheless, we see here it's suggested an actual link, an actual causal link between those two things. Notice how I didn't say the king and the land are one, because <laughs> that would not be appropriate. Inside Arthurian lit joke, uh, Excalibur humor never gets old. Uh, when once you've seen this movie, it will transform your life. I promise. Uh, anyway, the royal blood is the first step in the Great Charter. The abortion is the second step. The third and the fifth. What do you make of that? Um, well, we learn a little bit later. I, I, I read ahead, sorry. <laughs> But we learn a little tiny bit about the wallmakers. Yes. And that, I think, is referencing to them. Yeah, we have already had one or two indirect references to the people who built the wall. The building of the wall is a huge deal. And it's kind of interesting. At the beginning, we talked about the wall. We first meet the wall from the Encelstier inside. And our first encounter with the wall comes as Savriel is coming north towards the Old Kingdom, and we see the permanent army encampment on the Encelstierren side, and hear about their troubles in keeping both living, both sketchy dead things and sketchy living things from coming across the border. Um, and so one might perhaps assume, I think I did when I first read this book, that the wall was constructed by the Encelstierrens to keep the sketchy, dead and living things out from the like Hadrian's Wall, as we described. Um, but it turns out that the, that the wall was not built by the Anselski Herons at all, not built by the Romans to keep the Picts out. It was built by the Picts uh, to separate themselves from the Romans uh, using the Hadrian's Wall uh, illustration. And not only was it built by the Old Kingdom people, we begin to see that it has a, a really important significance that the, 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 not only that the wall is a really powerful artifact, a really powerful magical artifact constructed in the ancient world by very strong charter magic, but that it's, it itself and the, those who constructed the wall, the stone and the mortar, um, are themselves like the abhorsen and like the royal blood intimately tied with the great charter itself. Now, when I talk about the Great Charter, that's okay if it does, that doesn't make a lot of sense right now, because we haven't learned much about it. What's the, why haven't we learned much about it? They can't talk about it. Nobody can talk about it. Even Samuel discovers she can't talk about it. We've seen Moggett try a couple times, and then he like gags on himself. And at first he says, you know, it's like it's part of the binding. And it seems maybe, it's like, because we know that he's bound by Saranath, we know the binding in his collar... Um, so it seems maybe it's sort of part of that, though that didn't make sense. But then we see Touchstone has the same problem. He can't refer to some things. And then finally with Sabriel herself, there's something else going on there. Moggett finally, uh, um, finally alludes to it on page 144, indirectly, when he's talking to Touchstone. And Touchstone is begging Moggett not to tell Savriel what happened and about his part in what happened, which we still don't know. And Moggett says, spare me the pleadings. I can't tell her. You can't tell her. The corruption is wide and the spell rather indiscriminatory. So apparently they can't talk about the Great Charter because of some other spell that has been placed on it. We hear. This is this is this, that's that right there is the most information we've gotten so far about this. But we see they can't talk about the so again. If you don't understand what the Great Charter is, capital G, capital C, you, you, you're not supposed to yet. But that's why I wanted to go to this rhyme because here we're finally learning things. And the uh, number four sees all in frozen water. We haven't met them yet. There's been one allusion to them. The only hint is of when the water was released to flood the river, and we see it come down in chunks of ice. That's the only time we've seen frozen water. And the people, it's another, as we can, as we can guess from the other items in this list, this is also another group of people, another subset of people called Taylor? Um, the Claire? The Claire, yes, exactly. And I think we're not allowed to say what that is. Nah, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> 
But I can see you're about to bust back there, so I'll give you the opportunity. Jordan? Um, well, two things. One, there's a, a, a little bit of the incantation to get the water. The Adverse appears who respects the player and request the gift of water, so it's, it's, there's a little bit of communication going on there. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is, I just realized this week, who's been teaching the children these 200 years? <laughs> Other children! Uh, yeah, I. I can't, can't. Isn't it the only strong charm of ages of those who are actually members of like, the five characters, the ones that can't talk about it? So I would think that there would be some sort of, like, you know, a weak charm of ages for someone else who's like, really is a one who can talk about it. That's just the sort of strong. What has happened is that the charter itself has been twisted. Uh, twisted and perverted are two words that are used of the great charter itself, or of the great charters themselves. Um, and so, yeah, it does seem to work through, um, through, through the charter and therefore to affect people connected to the charter uh, much more. <coughs> the charter has been twisted, we are told. Um, and we see... Our second broken charter stuff. This time with the obvious she knows what happened because there are instructions how to break a charter stone in the Book of the Dead. And that's like very much in the don't try this at home category, but she knows about this. Right? Um, how is it done? Don't you have to sacrifice the charter mage or something? Yes, the charter mage gets her throat cut and her blood poured onto the charter stone and it's, it's not like all of it it's like, like if you accidentally splash the blood of it you know it's not like a charter maid cuts his finger and it's like oh shoot I broke the stone it's part of the ritual right but um, but the blood of the charter this, the sacrificial blood of the charter mage is the, is the crucial element um, and now in the context of that rhyme with what we've learned about the great charter about the five about the five why does that make sense? Why is it fitting that a charter stone would be broken in that way? Um, maybe, I don't know if this is right, but this is the way I read it when I heard the poem and it said that the bloodline was in the, the royal line and the horse and things like that, that they have to be used because they have the charter stones sort of inside of them as well, that their blood has to be used to break it. We see the charter established not just through... It's, it's not like a, a paper contract or something. The contract works through... The charter works through these bloodlines. These five bloodlines, the Abhorsen, the royal family, the two wall builders, and the Clare, are the charter. That's, where, that's what, what the charter is connected to. And so, so yes, therefore the blood... The blood of the the blood of a charter mage spilled. Now the charter mage that was sacrificed to break the charter stone in Nesto isn't one of those five, right? She's not she's not an abhorsen. She's not one of the clerics. She's not in the royal family. She's just a charter mage. And it, a, a char, being a charter mage is apparently something you can be taught, right? The soldiers at the wall learn charter magic, right? You can take you can take your sub rosa course in charter magic at. Byberly College, right? So it's not just, and that's not just a bloodline thing, but, but it is a blood thing. And it does seem to be something that binds people. We have, in the, 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 we talked about in the first class the significance of the charter and the way the charter is talked about. Um, and we can see this concept of the breaking of the stone. These stones all over the place seem to have, are, are, are obviously of a more than symbolic importance. What happens when you break a stone? Yeah, Jordan? You open a gateway into death. And a wind tax stone, several thoughts, skied by one, was able to draw up energy for a spell of warmth that as soon as she left, she just didn't have the energy for anymore. So it's like the, 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 the presence of life that gets perverted into this opening into death by its absence when it's broken. Yeah, we can see a, a pretty clear connection between the charter and life in general, life and spirit, um, contrasted with death and the breaking of the charter stone is this sort of permanent open door to death. And this is why the village 
has been afflicted in the way that it has. All there's been this inundation of dead of dead things lately, right? Just in the last couple of days, because the charter stone was just broken. Sabriel says three or four days ago. Um, so, yeah, yeah, we can see, and I think you're right when you look at the way that uh, when you look at the descriptions of the use of charter magic and and what strengthens or weakens charter magic. Um, remember sort of the antipathy with the other broken charter stone that she encountered on Cloven Crest when she's trying to make the diamond of protection around her and the point that's over closer to the charter stone just does not have the strength because she can't, she can't, she doesn't have, uh, she doesn't have the strength, she doesn't have the will, it's, it, it, it saps it where she normally would draw it from the charter stone. Um, We should talk about Moggit, though, before we go. We had uh, the, uh, the big Moggit moment. Um, what do we see with Moggit? Certainly if we think in the ways that we were thinking last time, in terms of kind of categories of things, we were looking at the lesser dead, the greater dead, at the charter constructs. With Moggit, we have a new category, right? I mean, we had hints that he was something, ancient and powerful um, and that he is bound and constrained against his will hence the collar uh, and the little Saranath on his collar but what do we see what is Mongit he's a free magic spirit yeah he's a free magic spirit she's when she's encountering him he's not dead he's not a dead spirit this is not, you know, he's not like one of the greater dead who's been enslaved, who's been, you know, captured and contained or anything like that. He is, you know, her, her death sense, as she calls it, um, picks up nothing. But he just reeks of free magic. And so, yeah, she thinks of him as like a free magic elemental or construct. In fact, we see he is not, therefore, the counterpart of Thralk or Caragor. He seems to be something more like, in a sense, the counterpart of the charter ghosts. Right? They were creatures, even creatures which attain personality and a kind of personhood, even though they are merely constructs of the charter. He is a construct of free magic, but we see there's a big difference between those things. What do we see? What do we see in him? His transformation um, from his true form of, you know, like a fire creature to the cat, it's it's taking away his true nature. He's it's not like I'm trying to think of a way to say this. Like like the the charter ghosts, they just happen to be made. They're 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 there because they're needed. But he was something else, and he's been forced... He, he was his natural self, and he's forced to be something he's not because of uh, his binding with the Aporsum. Yeah, he's imprisoned, as he says resentfully, into a fixed flesh body. Um, and that he really resents. Um, and this is very different. So we have, again, it's, it's kind of like the dead in some way. Like there's some kind of similarity between... Uh, I mean, like, for instance, a, a mordicant has a physical, you know, like a, a physical body is prepared and then a spirit is placed in it, right? And then it goes about its fiery, violent, evil business. Mogget, of course, is different. He's bound. Um, but even there we see... One thing at least we can take away from Mogget is that another illustration of how the abhorsons are... On that line, right? On that, on that boundary. What the abortions apparently, at some point in the past, long in the past, have done to Moggit, is kind of like what necromancers do to dead things. It's different. He's not a dead thing, right? But they have imprisoned him. They have bound him. They have dominated him, as he, again, says resentfully. And how can he be free? First, breaking of the binding, right? Lose the collar. And then? There's some form of retribution that needs to be paid. 
Yes, the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. He's got to kill her. And if only he could have brought himself to do it more quickly, it would have been done. Um, yeah, yeah. So, it's, there's, there's a, in some ways, slightly uncomfortable similarity. It's not exactly the same. I mean, Mogget in cat form is not a whole lot like a mortigant, uh, for instance. Um, even the kind of personality change that he undergoes, is the personality change an illusion? I mean, he's rather different when you take his collar off. <laughs> I think I think it's because like when, when he had the collar on, his personality was like um, lessened because he couldn't say a lot of things because he, he tries to say it but it never comes out right. And so now that he's free, he can say what he wants, basically. Yeah, he 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 is loosed from restraints in that way. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Christine, go ahead. I'm wondering if like when he gave when he gave her the ring. That like is that like a part of his his servitude to her to like I guess because it was I don't know to help her on her journey that like I that he did this because he says that he's reluctantly bound so then you'd figure he wouldn't give her the object in order to like bind him again but he does so I I'm assuming maybe that it's just a part of his general like position as a servant or slave I don't know right. It is certainly, you know, uh, a, a, a time-honored portion uh, or, or aspect of fairy tale tradition to have, you know, a bounder imprisoned creature try to trick somebody into setting it free, right? And you're right, Moggett's not doesn't do that. He gives her the ring. I mean, he, and not only does he give her the ring, not only does he hack up the ring and give it to her, um, but when she loses his collar, what does he do? He tells her to remember it. Yes. Yes, he says, loose my collar and remember the ring. As they're, like, plummeting through the air, he says this. Right? Loose my collar and remember the ring. And remember the objection she makes when she, you know, sort of wakes up to consciousness and says, um, you know, and, and he raises himself, he's like, I am here. <laughs> Set fire to the body of the paper wing. Uh, notice again the continual personification of the paper wing, right? It's lifeless eyes and the funeral pyre of the paper wing. Um, but anyway, when she sees Mogget again, what does she say? What sh- she raises an objection, which is quite a sensible objection. You didn't kill me already. Yeah, why have you killed me already? You saved me. Presumably, once it was in the form of free magic element, it was no longer in particular danger from plummeting from the sky? It was no longer bound to a fleshly body, so but it it stopped them from crushing. So, so I mean, she's making sort of a double like, A, you prevented me from dying when I was about to die and B, I've been lying here for what, how long? You know, and you've not killed me? When he's in his cat form, there are several times he actually says, you know, you take my collar off. It's kind of choking me. Could you take it off? And so he's he's bound and he's bound to servitude to help her, but he's not totally bound that he can still help. But with the ring thing, it says I can't find it, but it says that his voice is almost different when he's talking to her and telling her, You're gonna need this right. for me. That right. it makes me think that, you know, that's he's being compelled to do that when he would really rather not. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, he does seem... I mean, obviously, she if, if he were to be able to trick her, she'd be easy to trick. Right? Oh, yeah, just take me out. And then, you know, whatever. Um, he clearly is com- under compulsion to give her the ring. Um, but it's less obvious that he's under compulsion to say, remember the ring when you lose my collar. And it is perfectly clear that he's not under the same compulsion to save her life once he turns into a free elemental spirit. Again, he has an, He explains this that is in his glowing, uh, violent, free magic form. He explains it. Christine, um, is there a certain <coughs> way that the blood price has to be paid? Because that's like a 
a possible explanation for why he would need to save her, you know, not just let her crash, although there's like a specific ritual or he needs to consume her, because that seems right. like what he was about to do, I mean, that's right. like a specific way to... Right. That certainly seems... I mean, there's certainly precedent for that, you know, what with the blood sacrifice of the Charter Mage to break the Charter Stones and stuff, that to break what... To, the final step of breaking whatever binding would be would, would require some kind of ritual blood sacrifice and not just her accidental death plummeting to Earth. That does seem plausible. Um, or, as, as you say, his consumption of her. But that's not how he explains it at first. Like, I, I, that seems really quite likely. But what does he say? Remember what he says? Sentiment. 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 Yeah, this is on page 121. It's short, but worth glancing at. Sentiment, the thing we're pointing to. He's just said, (coughs) your head doesn't work too well. You saved it from not working forever. Sentiment, the thing replied, still silently sliding forward. And then it laughs and smacks her in the face. A memory now purged, it added. A memory now purged. What do you make of that? So he says that, that, that saving her from falling due to a memory now purged and sentiment. Yeah, Matt? The indication I got on that that while... Sorry. While the, the, the physical transformation of Mocket is immediately when we lose the binding, the mental transformation of Mocket has more of a transitional period where, it, where he actually has to readjust to being a free magic construct because of the gap. And the, the reason he didn't feel it earlier is because he hadn't gotten that point yet. Yeah, he seems to be... As a cat, he acts... In his cat form, he is the loyal servant of the abhorsed. And even in his sardonic and sarcastic way um, seems to show affection for her um, an actual devotion as much as he you know makes fun of the charter constructs and their complete uh, uh, and clearly in his eyes nauseating devotion nevertheless he shows that kind of devotion too and it, that does seem to carry over that does he does kind of transition out of that it is like a bit of his cat self is still there in other words, the suggestion, it seems, is that his mind, his own will, is at least in part changed or engaged. That he is not merely enslaved. Because when he's free, he doesn't just spring out and destroy stuff. He still voluntarily acts in benevolent ways, briefly, and then recovers himself. Right? Backing up what Max said a few pages earlier when they're falling, once he changes, and it says it seemed to hesitate, Moggett's, you know, <coughs> it seemed to hesitate for a moment, because Gabrielle felt its attention flicker between aggression towards her and some inner struggle. And that makes me think that Moggett, the, the cat Moggett, the servant Moggett, was is trying to force himself, don't just kill her right now, help her, I, I do want to help her. Yeah, there seems to be an internal struggle. Um, within the Mogget spirit, even after it has been, after it has been set free. Um, so yeah, I think that this this is this element is the thing that I would put against that other thing. That is the way in which this the binding of of Mogget seems to be parallel to what necromancers do to the dead. Sort of another illustration of again how close the abortions are to what necromancers do but the very significant difference uh, between what they do uh, and what other necromancers do. Um, Mogget, although he doesn't seem to like to admit it, has not only been enslaved, but also it seems, in part, won over also. And that he actually, though again, he doesn't admit it, likes the Accorsons um, and is not just an imprisoned slave desperate to get out at any second. Though again, that's also that's clearly there. That's the other half of the struggle. Yeah? Well, I don't think it's entirely clear that he's been emotionally won over. I think it might be I, I, I find it more likely that the mental change is actually part of the binding, is that they decided not to just enslave her, but also someone 
warp his mind. And the reason there's that pause is just because it takes a little while for him to fix it once he's free. It is possible. It is possible. Um, it is possible. The reason I don't think that is just based upon the things that he says and does as a cat. Um, but, but also remember what we're talking about here is Magic himself is also, in one sense, a kind of a kind of symbol, a kind of representative of how magic in general is working. Um, charter magic and free magic are not totally different. What the charter is seems to be a way of taking free magic and controlling, taking magic and controlling, not leaving it as free magic, um, but of binding it and constraining it and ordering it in association and through the instrumentation, apparently, of these particular people and group and thousands of years later, groups of people um, who, who did that, who took part in that. Um, so one could say, in a sense, that Magat's breaking of his collar is not just like a slave being set free, but is like the breaking of a charter stone. Which is, of course, why, as Christine pointed out, it's unsurprising that we should have a blood sacrifice in many cases. Um, and that it's specifically the blood of the abhorsen that needs to be shed in order to, for him to, to break his binding. Um, he is not just a person. He's not a human being. He has no body. He's not body and spirit. He is this elemental force. He is this like embodiment of free magic itself. And free magic is bound by the charter, and that's clearly a good thing, right? Um, but it is, it is, I think, a really interesting moment. We didn't get to Touchstone today. Uh, we, will, we will come back to him, brush up your Shakespeare, and we'll, we'll do Touchstone on Friday. That's all for this episode. Next time the class will continue with chapters 18 through 23 of Sabriel. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.